So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And once you are there and you have it, if you could stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 reads as follows. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. So obviously, uh, less text than we are used to biting off. We've been on a pretty good clip now, I would say, since we picked Luke back up. But now we're going to take a a nice uh, turn, a little detour in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Uh, And this is not an undue uh, detour. For those of you who've read this text, and maybe you've read it as we've been going through Luke, or you've read it in your quiet time at some point in your life, you might have noticed and given pause to the words that we just read. Also, in verse 40 of this same chapter, you see these words as well. You see, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You see both of these phrases regarding the the Lord Jesus Christ growing, changing, and developing. And that begs a whole lot of questions. Many of you know that before I was uh, here doing ministry with you guys, I was also uh, working as a teacher in the school system. And something that is true about education, when you're building a curriculum out, what you do is you build from the simple to the complex. And over the course of a year and over the course of many years and many years of education, what is supposed to happen is you build from a simple foundation into a more complex foundation. That's week to week, month to month, year to year. And then ideally from you know, grade school to junior high, from junior high to high school, hopefully also from high school to college, you're building in your complexity and your understanding. But what many of you might have experienced and what I have experienced in my life is sometimes you get to a very complex topic, let's say in college, and you realize that there's a gap in your knowledge that started way back in junior high. Maybe you've had the same experience with me even as an adult where you're getting the bill and they give you a paper receipt and then there's a little tip line on it and then you realize mental math is still a thing and you can't rely on calculators or other things. There's a gap in your knowledge that you need to fill. And you realize you've been taught this, you know you've been taught this in elementary school, but there's a gap in your knowledge as an adult. So when there's a gap in your knowledge, you have really two choices. One, what you could do is you could fake it. You could pretend like you know what you're doing, you know, spend a really long time focusing on the number, trying to do some mental math, and then just write down a number, your closest estimation, and give the tip, right? And with tipping, this is what most of us tend to do, at least this is what I tend to do when I'm given a bill. But some gaps in knowledge you can't ignore, right? Let's say you have a gap in knowledge in terms of literacy. Let's say you were illiterate, okay? That gap in knowledge is not just going to manifest itself in one area or one avenue of life. That rolls itself all the way down through your whole life. It's going to affect your entire experience. And so if you have that kind of a gap in knowledge, faking it or pretending like everything's okay is not really an option unless you want to have a lot of deficiencies downstream in your understanding. Okay. When it comes to the incarnation, the God-man, a lot of us read texts like this and we realize that back whenever we were being trained and discipled as youths, we might have had a gap in our knowledge or a gap in our understanding or a gap in our training about what the incarnation is, who Christ is, and what does it mean that he is God and man? What do those things mean? And so then we have two choices. One, we could fake like we know what's going on, like we understand it, and then kind of move on. But I want to submit to you that this is not the kind of 
uh, mystery, this is not the kind of tension in the text that we can just glance over and pretend like we understand. This is the kind of tension that will affect your downstream understanding of doctrines like the atonement, of doctrines like the sovereignty of God, on doctrines that have to do with the penal substitution of Christ on the cross. How do all of those things fit together if we can't understand the God-man, the incarnation? So what we're going to do tonight with this text is we're going to take this as a deep dive unraveling of what does it mean for Jesus to be, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, truly God and truly man. What does it mean for him to have been truly God and truly man? Okay. When we read texts like this, most of us have an easy time conceiving of Jesus as God. Right? Most of us who grew up in church have an easy time conceiving of his divinity. But then we know things that are truths in Scripture which tell us that God does not change. Right? God does not change. Malachi th chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. It's pretty clear. God cannot change. And then we read in James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. Old Testament and New Testament. Or if you want to look with me at a longer text that talks about this, turn with me to Psalm 102, verse 25. Psalm 102, verse 25, and I didn't mark these off, so I'm going to have mercy on you as well in this. We're going to be turning a lot of places today. Psalm 102, verse 25, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servant shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is Psalm 102 referring to God and saying things like, He doesn't change. The whole earth will pass away. The creation will pass away. But God does not change. And then we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. And so we're left with this question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the God-man. So to answer that question, we're going to walk through the three kind of like main tenets of what it means to be a God-man. Okay, we're going to first take a look at the divine nature. What does scripture say about Jesus's divine nature, his divinity? Then after we're done with the divine nature, we're going to look at his human nature, which is what Luke here is talking about. What does it mean for Jesus to have been a human? What is his human nature? And then we're going to look at how do we fit those two understandings together? How do we fit those two natures together? And that is really the doctrine of the incarnation. So those are the three things we're going to go through, starting with the divine nature. When we talk about the divine nature, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the church has not always accepted the divinity of Christ. In fact, in the early church, there was a heresy known as Arianism, which submitted that Jesus was not divine, but rather he was the first created thing, meaning there is God, he created Jesus as the first of creation, and then after he created Jesus, he created all things through Jesus. This early church heresy was condemned as a heresy in the early church, but it still exists today in groups such as Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Arianism, that Jesus was not a fully divine being, rather he was a very high, a very highly created being, a very perfect being, 
but yet not God, that he does not possess divinity. And so we need to address what does it mean for Jesus to have had divinity? What does it mean to have been truly God? Isaiah chapter 9, 6, among the many names that it identifies Christ with, you'll remember that it says he is mighty God. That's a very clear declaration of his divine nature, referring to the coming son as not only the prince of peace, but as also the mighty God. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, when Paul is expounding the truths of salvation to the Israelites, he says that to theirs, being the Jewish people, that theirs is the Christ who is God over all, referring to Jesus not only as Christ, not only as Messiah, but as something more as God. So it's not just good enough for, understand, for us to understand Jesus as Christ or as Messiah, but we need to understand him also as being God as well. Scripture speaks clearly about this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's Paul writing again, referring to the incarnation, saying that in him the whole fullness of deity, of divinity, dwells bodily. That's Paul writing again. And then we come across texts like Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, which refer to Jesus emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant. And then you get modern theories, modern iterations of these kinds of things that say that Jesus was at one point divine, and then when he came in body form, he emptied himself of his divinity, and that when he ascends back into heaven, when he's glorified, he takes back on his divinity. But what we just read earlier is that God cannot change. And so for God to ever cease to put off his divinity, for him to ever empty himself of divinity, and then to take it back up, is for divinity to, at least at some point, be discontinuous in the person of Jesus. And so this is a heretical belief. This was known as the kenosis theory. It was popular in the 1800s by some German theologians. And it still exists today in many seminaries in the United States, saying that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. But if you look at that text in Philippians 2, verse 7, it doesn't say that he emptied himself as divinity. It says that Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Meaning he doesn't empty himself of his divinity. He empties himself of his glory and takes on the form of a servant. He's still divine, clothed in humility, clothed in the form of a servant. He empties himself of his glory, not of his divinity. He humbles himself and becomes a man. And so with the counsel of scripture, and these are just a few select texts we're looking at, we see that scripture clearly teaches about the divine nature of Christ. And that divine nature, when it says that Christ is God, it means that he is God in every respect, meaning he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. He's immutable, which means he never changes. It means he's sovereign over all things, that he's providential over his creation. It means things that seem to contradict with what Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, namely, that he grows. Or that, more specifically, he grows in favor with God. And you ask the question, how can God grow in favor with God? But we know that to deny the divinity of Jesus is fundamentally a heretical teaching. And we know that not because people decided it, but because an apostle, the apostle John, wrote in 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Meaning if you deny Jesus and what Scripture teaches about him, 
you don't have the father that that scripture talks about either. You might have your own conception of who this God is. You might have your own conception about Jesus. But if you deny scripture's teaching about Jesus, you deny scripture's teaching about the father. Meaning if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. And so this is not just a theological debate, but this is a matter of salvific definition. Are we saved and how are we saved and how do we understand salvation if we don't understand Jesus? His divinity is essential to salvation. Scripture teaches us about it. Well, after a couple hundred years of wrestling in the church, the Nicene Creed was formed and the Council of Nicaea came up with this statement. And I'm going to read it twice, but I want you to listen. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. This is the Nicene Council statement, and this was, by the way, the point in which the church said Arianism is a heresy. This is the orthodox teaching of what scripture says. We, we say that we believe in the Father and the Son, that they are distinct, but the Son has divinity. It's God from God. That he is not created, but he is begotten of the same essence of the Father. You remember last week, we talked about Jesus declaring himself to be Son, to have sonship with the Father. And how this talks about the homoousia, or the, the one essence, or the one nature, that, the, that, the, that Jesus has. He's one with the Father, one in essence, one of nature. So this is the orthodox teaching about the divine nature of Jesus, that he has a truly divine nature. Okay? Now let's move on to what Luke talks about in this text, which is the human nature. Putting them together is going to be the hard part. So we're going to get through divine, then to human, and we'll try to put them together. So it's important for us not to fall. So to, to deny his divinity is heretical. And that is a dangerous road. But it's equally as dangerous to, exert his, to exhort his divinity and at the expense of denying his humanity. Because scripture teaches us that it's just as dangerous, it's just as unfaithful to say that he wasn't a real human or he didn't have a real humanity. Okay, so saying he's not divine, heretical, but it's just as heretical to say he wasn't a true human or he didn't have a true human experience on earth. Because that same text in Romans 9, 5, when Paul says that Jesus is Christ, the Lord over all, he says right before that, that Jesus is the one descended of the Jews. Meaning, yes, he's descended of the Father, but also he's descended of the Jewish lineage. Meaning an actual ethnic group that you can trace throughout time. He has a human lineage. He's divine, but he's also human. No contradiction there, but they're distinct ideas. The heresy that is associated with this is one that we actually see pop up in the New Testament. This was one of the first heresies the church had to deal with. It was called Gnosticism, which taught that Jesus was divine and his body was really just like an ethereal body. It was created from heaven. It was a heavenly body. It wasn't a real human body and it was like super powered in many ways. So we're not talking, the Gnostics didn't believe in a Jesus with a real humanity. They believed in almost like a superhuman or a demigod that came down to earth and that basically faked his death and ascended, but not really in bodily form because his body was kind of a, fa a phantom or a figment. This was the Gnostic teaching. 
And so this Gnostic teaching, Paul has to address in many letters where he says that every other sin someone commits outside the body, but sexual sin one commits against his own body. And this is a problem because the body is resurrected on the last day. And Paul is saying you have to take care of your body. It's not just your soul, but your body can be defiled as well. That both things are true. And you see these pop up in the New Testament text. So heresies such as Gnosticism popped up even in the time of the apostles. And that continues even to this day. Gnosticism and different forms of it. But we know that scripture says Jesus had a real humanity. He was truly human. And the reason we know this is because we see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus feeling the effects of a human body just like you and I. It says in John 4, 6 that Jesus gets tired. So he used to sit down at the well where he meets the Samaritan woman. And he asks her to give him a drink of water. But he, he takes that stop because he's tired. It says he's weary, and so he needs to take a step aside. In John 19, 28, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, I thirst. And then they offer him a drink, meaning he feels the effects of human pain, such as weariness and thirstiness. It also says in Matthew 4, 2, when he's being tempted, that he is hungry because he's gone 40 days without eating. And so he feels the effects of these kinds of events just like you and I do. When he's crossing the sea or the, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, you'll remember that scripture tells us that he is so tired from all day long preaching and healing people that he sleeps literally through a storm that they have to wake him up from. He's so tired he's sleeping through a storm. We see things that uh, Jesus ultimately, we see he has a real humanity because he's killed on a cross. And that's perplexing because God is immutable, meaning God cannot die. But yet Jesus died. He was crucified on a cross. The full realization of his humanity was that he gave up his last breath and he stopped living in the same way that you and I were to stop living if we died. And that wasn't a fiction. That wasn't a figment as the Gnostics taught. That was a real death experience that Christ had on the cross. It was really dead. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 teaches this as well. It says that Jesus increased or he progressed or he advanced in wisdom and in stature, meaning he grew not only in body and stature, meaning in physical strength or maybe in height, but also that he grew in wisdom, which means he didn't only have a human body, he also had a human mind and a human will because he's growing in wisdom. Scripture claims teaches that he not only grows in his body, but he also grows in his mind. So he has a human mind, a human understanding. And it says also that he grows in favor with God and with man. Which means that when he was zero years old, when he was just born, he was perfect. But as he grows from zero to 12, he increases in terms of holiness and perfection and favor with God. And then from 12 to 30, he increases even more so in favor with God. And the question is, as we talked about earlier, how does an immutable God grow in favor? How does he grow in anything? How does perfection increase? Well, if we look, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews 5 tells us actually how Jesus grew. Hebrews 5, and we'll be in verse 7, says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus here is crying out. He's crying out in great pain. And you see that he cries out to God who's able to save him from death. 
And you'll see as it continues in verse 8, although he was a son, meaning although he was divine, he learned obedience, he's progressing, through what he suffered. And then verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Meaning, he was perfect when he was born, he grows, and then ultimately on his death, he was being made perfect through his earthly ministry, through his life, until when he's crucified, that perfection has been completed. And so then here's the question, how can you be made more perfect? How can someone grow in perfection? If we think about perfection as 100%, that's either like an all or nothing, right? You either have it or you don't, okay? So how do you grow in perfection? Well, to come up with maybe a poor illustration of this idea, consider with me sports. And you know I'm desperate when I'm referring to sports as an illustration, okay? <laughs> so if you have a sports team, you can have a sports team that has a perfect record if they're one game deep into the season and they have a one to nothing record. They've won one game and they've lost no games. They are perfect in terms of their record. And let's say a month later you're following that same sports team and you find out that between the first time you watch them and now, they are still undefeated. They've won every single game between then and when you're watching them now. They are now growing in perfection. They are becoming more perfect as the season is progressing through. Their perfection is being tested, and the more it's being tested, the more it's being proven or verified. And then at the completion of that season, if they are still undefeated, they are still perfect, their perfection has been fully tested for the duration of the season, and they have been perfected, or they have been made perfect over the course of the season. They were perfect to start, they progressed and grew in perfection, and then ultimately they were completed in perfection. And Jesus, in his life, we know that he couldn't just zap down onto this earth, die on a cross, and then come back to heaven, but that he had to assume the form of a body, grow in obedience, grow in perfection, grow in holiness for his whole adult life. And when that was completed, when the time of his perfection is completed, he is offered up as a sacrifice. So he was perfect, he progressed in perfection, and he was ultimately made perfect through the sufferings that he endured. The way Sinclair Ferguson says it is this. It says, he grew in holiness, not from sin to perfection, but from the perfection of a 12-year-old to the perfection of a 30-year-old. He grows in perfection, not from sin to perfection, but from the perfection of a youth to perfection of an adult. As his perfection is tested over and over, he grows more and more in perfection. And so then this asks the question, well, what does this mean for you and I who are followers of Christ Jesus? The implication is if he grows in his obedience, in his perfection towards the Lord, that you and I, when we are made alive in Christ, must follow his example. He grows in obedience. As a perfect man, he grows in obedience towards God. And so you and I, as converted believers, can grow in our obedience to God. As a matter of fact, we should never stop growing. In Philippians chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me to Philippians 3, Paul exhorts the Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. He says he presses on towards the goal of being made perfect in Christ. This is a converted Paul talking about growing in perfection, progressing, and then he says at the end, let those of us who are mature in our faith think this way. This is the mind that a mature Christian has through the Holy Spirit. Not that we have arrived, but that we are always being made perfect in Christ. And we press on, never being content with a stagnant state of religion. In fact, in science, one of the very marks that something is alive is its ability to grow and to divide and to multiply. And so as a Christian, if we are alive in Christ, we must grow in Christ. We must grow in holiness as the very proof and evidence of the fact that we are alive. In his teaching on the, the sower in Luke, in the parable of the sower in Luke, he distinguishes between the mature seeds and the mature seeds that are choked out by the world. And the difference between those is one bears fruit and the other one's fruit never matures. That the seed is planted for both, a plant springs up out of both, one bears fruit and the other one has fruit that never matures. Meaning fruit that never develops, never advances, never grows. It remains stagnant. And so as Christians, it is not good enough for us to accept that, yeah, I said, I prayed a prayer, I said it one time and I'm good to go now. But we must, as evidence of the fact that Christ is alive in us and his spirit dwells in us, grow in Christ. That is the exhortation of the text. If Christ Jesus can grow from perfect to more perfect, you and I can strive to put on our, off of our old selves and take on our new selves and grow in perfection. And what this means about eternity is that we don't get to heaven in a glorified state and stay there, but that in heaven we grow in perfection, we grow in holiness, we grow in obedience because we can go from perfect to more perfect, to perfecter, to perfectest, and on and on and on as the English language fails to describe how for an eternity we can grow in obedience towards God and be progressing always in our submission. That is what Christ Jesus models for us in his earthly body. Not as some figment that we need to escape the body and ascend to heaven to obtain this state, but that it is an active obedience that the Christian life calls for in active obedience, not as an earning of salvation, but as a proof of the very life that does exist within us. It is the fruit of our conversion that we grow in obedience. It is the fruit of what we have as believers. And so then that leads us to the question, how do we take Jesus's divinity and his humanity and reconcile all of the pieces that seem to fall apart when you try to put those two things together. The mystery of the incarnation may be the very most challenging mystery that we as a church and as a body of believers have ever had to address in our history. And if you are feeling overwhelmed with these two contrasts and scripture speaking clearly about divinity, clearly about humanity, and you're looking at them and you're trying to see how to put them together, and you're feeling the weight of maybe a gap in knowledge that you have, Consider that it took the church just about 500 years to figure out where it stood on these issues. And it wasn't without the best minds and theologians committing their whole lives to defending and, and 
and studying the text to figure out what the truth of scripture actually was. And at the conclusion of that time, some of the best theologians were actually condemned as heretics because they held fast to a position that was deemed unorthodox by the church. But fortunately, we live after that series of events. And for the last 1,500 years, the definition has not changed. In fact, it is still the standard for orthodoxy. This is known as the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, depending on how you pronounce it. And it happened in 451 AD, and this is what it said about Jesus. It acknowledged in two natures, which are under no confusion, no change, no division, and no separation. I'll say that again. It acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. So it says that Jesus has two natures. We've talked about both, his divinity and his humanity, that are together with no confusion, no change, no division, and no separation between those two things. That is the definition that 500 years of church history yielded us, and it is still the standard. So what it's saying is we, di we distinguish between the two natures. We say that he does have two natures, but that we don't divide those two natures out and try to parse them and treat them individually. He has two natures, but we don't, Scripture doesn't say that Jesus in his humanity did this or Jesus in his divinity did this, but rather refers to Jesus as one person. And so we need to hold that intention. And if you think about any of the truths of our faith, if you press really deep into them, they become mysteries as soon as you get deep. We think about sovereignty and responsibility and how those things work themselves out and the mystery that it presents itself through Scripture. God is absolutely sovereign. Man is absolutely responsible. Figure it out. We know the, the mystery of the inspiration of Scripture, that God spoke through humans to write his text. But it wasn't that God possessed humans and they weren't aware of what they were doing or that humans wrote and God later ratified it, but that God somehow worked through human authorship in human vocabulary, limited by time and context to speak eternal truths that were 100% true. And then we come to the incarnation, another essential truth of the Christian faith, and we see that God is, or that Jesus is fully God, or rather I should say truly God and truly man, and yet, those are not distinctions, and those are not contradictions. That God took on flesh and dwelt among us, as Scripture said. So then we have to examine the heresies that come along with trying to put these things together and trying to get more specific than this definition allows us to. Okay? If, you, if you go outside of the definition of Chalcedon, you can pick your heresy, but you're going to end up somewhere. You go outside of these borders, you can pick your heresy. So this definition is not a specific one. It doesn't get HD in terms of the two natures. But what it does is it provides guardrails for us to remain on the path of orthodoxy. Okay? So we can pick our heresy. The first heresy that presents itself is that Jesus had a human body and a divine nature. When Scripture says that God took on flesh, what they take that to mean is that he had a human flesh or a human body but not a human will or a human mind, just a human body, and that God possessed that human body for a time. But the reason that's heretical is because Luke 2.52 says he grows in wisdom and in obedience and in holiness. 
And a body can't grow in wisdom. A mind grows in wisdom. A will can grow in understanding. A will can grow in obedience and submission. And so if Jesus grows in those things, he doesn't just have a human body. He also has a human mind and a human will. So we say he has a human nature or he is a truly human person. In the same way that a lifeless corpse isn't a true human anymore, it is just a body. We can say that if Jesus had just a body with a divine possession, that that is not truly what the God-man is, because that would make Jesus a superman. He has all the lookings of a human, but his divinity is kind of sneaking itself out all over the place, and it's really hard for him to suppress it. And that he was faking it this whole time, and that when he dies on the cross, he merely evacuates that body that he was possessing, but that that body doesn't actually die because it was never really a human body that lived. So that's the first heresy. The second is that Jesus is two persons present in one body, meaning if he has a human mind and a human will and a human intellect, as well as a divine mind and divine will and a divine intellect, that these are referring to two different persons who occupy the same space and time. This is heretical because it talks about Jesus almost as being schizophrenic, meaning he is like two people like always vying for control of the ship. And the human mind disagrees with the divine mind and somehow, some way, these two bash it out and grow together. This is a heresy because we say that we are to, supposed to distinguish but not to separate or to divide the two natures. And this is a division of the two natures. It separates out his divinity from his humanity and tries to allocate them into two different corners in the same body. But we say that he is one person with two natures, not two different persons. And then that leads us to the third heresy, which is likely the most common even today. And this one says that Jesus is not really human and he's not really divine. But instead, he is this hybrid between the two. That God, when he takes on humanity, cannot be God any longer, and humanity, when divinity possesses it, cannot be humanity any longer, but it is this new third thing that was created as a result of the mingling. But the council says that it's without confusion and without change that Jesus has two natures in one person. And so you can understand maybe how there's barriers or borders that we've put in place, but you can't get much more specific than this without erring on heresy one way or another. And the reason you can't do that is because this is a mystery. It is a divine mystery what scripture teaches about the God-man. And so with all this theology, with all this unpacking, let's talk about why it's important for us to understand this. Let's talk about why we spent this whole time filling in this gap in knowledge. What are the practical implications of all that we've just talked about, okay? Here's a practical implication that we can see right off the bat in Scripture. Scripture teaches us that God cannot die. But Scripture also teaches us that you and I fall short of God's standard and that there must be a substitute in our place. And if God cannot die and no human is holy enough to be the substitute, what then are we left with? But in the God-man, two natures come together to have a holy, perfect person who can actually die in the place of sinful people. He is the substitute of humanity. And the only way that's possible is if he clothes himself in a real humanity. Because God cannot die, and yet death is required to pay the payment. 
death is required for the ransom. And we see through his crucifixion that Jesus has a real humanity. You remember the accounts of when the Roman soldiers beat him. And they beat him so badly that he can't even carry his cross up to Golgotha. And we see that that is a human body giving out. A human body with flesh torn open, with so much blood loss that he can no longer drag his cross. No God would ever wear out like that. But yet Jesus Christ wears out through the beating. And he has a real humanity. We see that when he is tempted in the wilderness, he is really tempted by Satan. He has an authentic temptation. And yet, he is without sin. And we see that not only can God not die, but God also can't bleed. And Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus had to have a real humanity in order to bleed on our behalf. Because God cannot bleed on your and mine behalf. God cannot bleed. And so God, before the foundation of the world, puts this plan into place to save us from our own sinfulness through the incarnation, through the God-man. And it is through his humanity that he stands as our substitute. Because only a man can stand in for sinful man. God cannot do that. God can have mercy on us, and he can desire to pardon us, but without violating his own justice, he can't actually do that unless someone bleeds in our place. And so Jesus bleeds when he is cut and when the crown of thorns goes into his head and when the nails go through his hands. And when he is whipped, he bleeds and bleeds and bleeds. And when the sword goes into his side and pierces him, he bleeds. And only a human can bleed. God cannot bleed. And yet Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, sin cannot be forgiven. And so we need him to have a body. We need him to atone for us. And not only that, not only does he pay the guilt, does he, only, does he pay the guilt that is imputed to us with our sin? He pays off the guilt, but more than that, he pays off the shame that sin carries as well. He was put to shame, mocked, beaten, scorned, spit on by his accusers. He was scoffed and taunted on the cross. And he was put to shame by all humanity. And he bore not only the guilt of our sin, but also the shame that our sin carries. The very same shame that you and I carry around with us all the time. And we are okay with theologically understanding God forgave us the guilt of our sin, but we carry the shame around with us as if it's still our burden to bear. But Jesus on the cross paid for our guilt and through his humiliation for our shame as well. Meaning shame should never prevent us from going to Jesus and casting our sins before the cross and feeling vindicated. He bears our shame, and just to put it bluntly, God cannot bear shame, but a human body can bear shame. And so Jesus must have been a real human, or else he couldn't have bore our shame. And that's why the psalm in Psalm 34 can say that those who look on him are radiant, they will never be ashamed. Because Jesus already paid it. He bore the guilt, and he bore the shame that sin carries. Both things which prevent us from unity with God. And so we should not carry those things anymore, neither the guilt nor the shame. Both are atoned for in Jesus' body. And as John 10, 18 says, 
more than just being a human, he is God because he says this, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, referring to his life. And so when he really lays down his life to actually die on that cross, he also takes up his own life again through his deity. He takes up his humanity and resurrects his body from the grave. Because a human could die, but only God can come back from the dead. Only God can conquer death. And he comes back in resurrection to prove that he had divinity, to prove that he conquered sin and the grave. And he takes up his body and he proves to all his apostles that he is a real body that's resurrected. And he eats fish with them and he says, touch the holes of my hand. I am real. And he takes up his own body. And that leads Paul to write in 1 Timothy 2 that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop being human. He doesn't stop with his human nature at any point. He ascends to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, which right now is where he's interceding for us. So when you and I offer prayer, we offer supplication, we repent of our sins and we take them before God, God desires to have mercy. And he looks at Jesus and Jesus says, look at the holes, look at the hole in my side. I have paid for that sin. It is done. He is the living proof that shame and guilt are all done. And he does that not once, but actively for all of eternity he will do it. And he will be the mediator between God and man. And he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. That's what scripture teaches. That he is man and he is God and he mediates for us. And as Colossians chapter 2, and I need to turn there, Colossians 2, 2 and 4. Colossians 2, 2 and 4 says it this way. That he, Paul, desires for them to reach a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in verse 4, he warns them, and I want to warn you through this text. I say this in order that none of you may delude this teaching with plausible arguments. Meaning, if any of you seeks to deny the truth of the mystery of the God-man, I want to warn you not to delude the teaching with plausible arguments. Stipulations such as, well, if he was really God, he couldn't have been really man. Because mystery implies that you and I can't get our heads around something. And frankly, if you worship a God that you can fully understand in all knowledge and in all perfection, that is not a God worth worshiping. God, by definition, must be bigger than us, must be far beyond us. His mind is so far above our ways that it should not be a surprise to us when he introduces a concept to us and we go, I don't get it. He does that to his disciples all the time. God does that to Job when he comes down and Job says, how is it right that I suffer? And God says, where were you at the foundations of the world? Not addressing the question, but saying, my ways are so far above your ways. It should not be a shock to you, Job, that things happen to you that you don't understand and that you can't wrap your head around. Because as Christians, we're not called to necessarily understand in full, explicit detail. We are given enough evidence to believe, and then we are called to put our faith in God and in his word and what he says. If you worship a God that you can fully understand in detail, the truth is you are worshiping the limits of what your mind can get to. But the God of Scripture goes far beyond the limits of any human mind. And so we must understand that any plausible argument will fall short 
in trying to understand the true explicitness of this teaching. And Paul says this, that when he shares Christ with the Galatians, that he's not a servant of man, he's not a pleaser of man. He says, did I seek the approval of man? If I did that, then I would no longer be a servant of God. And so when you and I declare the gospel and declare Jesus Christ, we know that we acknowledge foolishness to the Gentiles and folly to the Jews, which is a stumbling block. And we know that we are going to say things that are going to seem crazy to the natural man. And yet, Paul says, I did not seek the approval of man because if I did that, I would no longer be being a servant of God. And so we determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. A dead, crucified Messiah, which to the Jews is folly. It's a stumbling block. And yet a resurrected king, which to the Gentiles is a naturalistic impossibility. And yet Christians say that this is the God who we worship. And this is without contradiction, but beyond the scopes of what our brain can get around. One of the commentators who I bumped into on this text on the incarnation is a guy by the name of H.B. Charles. He's one of my favorite theologians, one of my favorite pastors today. And he draws a correlation between John chapter 1, and I'm going to turn there to John chapter 1, verse 14, and a story that happens in Exodus. And I want you to see this with me because he says that this is the very thing that separates Christianity out from every other religion. H.B. Charles tells us about the story when Moses prays to God and says, I just want to see your glory. And God says, Moses, you know you can't see my glory because it will kill you. So what I can do is I can tuck you into a rock, cover you, go past, and as I'm leaving, as I'm, you can look and see kind of like the traces of my goodness. But you can't see my glory because it will kill you. And H.P. Charles says that God knew that sinful man would be killed by beholding his face. And yet, John, in chapter 1, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Referring to Jesus. Saying that he is the glory of God. The glory Moses couldn't see because it was not yet time. And yet, Jesus was the glory of God. John probably referring here to the Mount of Transfiguration when his, Jesus shines through the veil of his humanity and his divinity is put on display. And John was one of the disciples who was there. And he sees the glory of God. And when you and I look at Christ Jesus, we might not have seen that moment, but H.P. Charles says we should all be able to relate to that experience. We should see his glory when we look at the God-man. We should behold his glory. And he says, and this is a quote, if you see some ghetto carpenter turned upstart rabbi and a wannabe Messiah, you need to run to the cross and look again so that you can behold his glory. Take a closer look at the God-man. Re-examine what you think of when you think of Jesus because the incarnation is not a truth to be pondered, but it is the glory of God which we are to grasp and hold on to for dear life. Because it is through the humanity that we have a substitute. And it is through the divinity that he is resurrected and sovereign over all. And that we can worship him and behold his glory. So then the question to conclude on is simple. What do you see 
when you look at the God-man. When you look at Christ Jesus, the one who the Gospel of Luke is talking about, and we will learn more about him, the one who all Scripture points to, when you look at Jesus Christ, the God-man incarnate, what do you see? If you see foolishness and folly, you need to recognize you are looking with natural eyes. But if you see the glory of God put on full display, then you can recognize that that is by the grace of God that you have seen that. And you need to run and remind yourself of the glory that is put on display in the Incarnation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the teaching of your word. God, we, we can truly recognize that all Scripture speaks with one voice and that there is no contradiction or error or falsehood in this book and all of it is reconcilable, Lord, even if our minds are so weak and so dim that we can hardly grapple with it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open up to our eyes the truth of this text, the truth of the fact that Jesus was God and Jesus was man, and that those are a mystery to us. And Lord, would you give us the humility to acknowledge that we cannot understand all that you have and all that you reveal, but Lord, we just ask for the grace to understand just a little bit more every day, just a little bit more of your goodness, just a little bit more of the grace that you give us so that we can live more holy and obedient lives to you and also, Lord, so we can glorify you better because the better we know you, the better we are able to glorify you. As so we ask for your grace to us this evening that you would be upon us to convict us of sin, to loosen our tongues so that we can glorify you, that we are not going to be bound by our sin and our guilt, but rather we are going to put it before the cross and take it to the throne where we know we can find grace. And Lord, we thank you that that is a sure promise. Lord, I pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.